You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Please take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Several of you have asked me if I enjoyed my vacation last week. The short answer is yes, I did. I missed some of you dearly, (laughs) let me just put it that way. Um, But we stayed with some friends down in Cannon Beach, and I don't think I realized how much I needed a vacation until I took one. I even had the opportunity to start some recreational reading there on the beach and enjoy some time with my family. It was nice starting something that I didn't have to highlight or underline along the way. So I started a book called The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. This is an excellent, excellent book. It's fascinating. It accounts for Winston Churchill's first year as the Prime Minister of England. If you like books on World War II, I highly recommend this one to you. It's well-written, compelling, and on top of all that, well-researched, with over 40 pages of citations at the back of the book. But what struck me most as I dove into it was how unexpected the characters of history actually are in real life. The preconceptions that I had of Churchill and Goering and so many others throughout the book, they melted away as I began to see these men for who they really were. It's funny how a good biography can do that. It can take the black and white picture that we have in our mind and it can fill it with color. All of a sudden, these men, their dreams, their drives, and their decisions begin to take shape, and it becomes clear not only what they did, but why they did it. And honestly, that's what Paul does for us here in Philippians chapter 2. He gives us clear commands in stark black and white. He says, come together, be humble, be obedient, don't complain, don't grumble about it, and be different. But he also colorizes the picture with living examples for each principle. He gives us four biographical snippets throughout chapter 2, four spiritual role models worth emulating, because these four men that he mentions here in this chapter practice what Philippians 2 preaches. Let me remind you of the big picture. The primary point and focus of chapter 2 is found in verses 3 and 4 where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2 is all about this attitude of humility. It can be argued that humility is the first of all great Christian virtues, If love is the greatest, humility has to be the first, because you can't come to Christ without it. You can't come to the Lord without humility. The proud person will never get saved or grow in grace. You must continually deny yourself, embrace death, and follow Christ if you are to receive eternal life. Everything else we read about in chapter 2 flows out of this attitude of humility. So who are these four humble giants of the faith, worthy of imitation before us? Paul starts at the very top 
and he works his way down. He doesn't start at the bottom and work his way up. He starts with the greatest because the first is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Look at verse 5 there in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves or this attitude among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And from there in verses 5 through 11, he goes on to describe how Jesus humbled himself lower than any man. And so as a result, God has exalted him higher than any man, because uh, above every man, because, because that's how God works. God has given him the name that is above every other name, the name of Lord. He has given him top spot in the universe because he lowered himself lower than anyone else. And God does that. He exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. So Paul makes a beeline straight to Christ. Why wouldn't he? He says, if you want to know what true humility looks like, look to Jesus. He's the perfect example and our ultimate role model. He's number one. The second colorful example is Paul himself. And we looked at that briefly last time in verses 17 and 18. There Paul says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul saw himself as a drink offering, being poured out upon the faith of the Philippians. His ministry was one of sacrifice as he poured himself out for the sake of the church. And in doing so, he shows us what humility looks like. We've seen Jesus and we have seen Paul. That leaves two role models left. So today we're going to look at Timothy in verses 19 through 24. How the humility of verses 3 and 4 came alive in this young man's life as he selflessly gave himself for the sake of others. Next week we'll look at Epaphroditus who considered the interests of others more important than himself so far even to the point of death. Paul says he risked his life and he almost died for the work of Christ. So if we were to slow down even further and give each illustration here in this chapter a title, based on their descriptions here, we could say, Jesus is the supreme servant. Paul is the sacrificial servant. Timothy is the selfless servant. And Epaphroditus is the suffering servant. Each man's experience brings a vivid array of color to the black and white command of humility. So with that in mind, let's see what Paul has to say about his son in the faith, Timothy, starting in verse 19. He writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was more than just a spiritual project for Paul. You could call him a protege, or a pupil, but he was more than that. 
He was Paul's blood relative in the faith. When Paul set out on his second missionary journey, he had Silas and Luke to accompany him. And, and early on, he picked up this young newcomer named Timothy. Timothy was well-known, and he was well-respected among other believers. His mother was a Jew who had taught him the Scriptures since birth. His father was a Greek who gave him a solid secular education. It's no wonder that Paul decided to bring Timothy along. And soon after that, the church of Philippi was born. Timothy was there for that. He saw it go down. He saw it take place. He knew these people from the very beginning, and he was a part of it. Well, 10 years later, Timothy is in his early to mid-30s, and he's still serving Paul. He's still there by his side. He's in the room with Paul as he writes Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, let's not forget that Paul, as he writes this, he's not sitting on a beach somewhere. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a guard 24-7, and he's not alone. Timothy is right there with him. At the very beginning, Philippians 1.1, we are told, uh, he says, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul is the one who is writing this letter, or more likely dictating this letter. But it also comes from Timothy, because Timothy is there in the room with him. So the Philippians are not the only ones. They're certainly not, they're not even the first to hear this letter read out loud. And Timothy is hearing it all first. And by signing his name alongside Paul's, it's safe to say that Timothy knew what Paul was about to write. He knew what Paul wrote about him to the Philippians. We have no indication that Paul asked Timothy to leave the room while he adds this glowing little review of his ministry. We have no reason to believe that he covered that part of the parchment with his hand and told Timothy, now no peeking. Don't look at what I'm about to write. I don't want you to see what I'm about to put in here about you in the middle. There's no indication of that. No, he commends Timothy in front of Timothy. And he does it without apology. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard someone say something encouraging about other brothers and sisters in Christ, other people in the church, and in the same breath say, oh, but don't tell them I said that. Don't let them know that, that I said that about them because I don't want them to think too highly of themselves. I, I wouldn't want them to get puffed up. I wouldn't want them to, to inflate because you know, almost like a pat on the back would somehow ruin that person or make them proud. Friend, that's not how Paul operated. Instead, he looked for opportunities to dote on his friends and highlight the good things that they were doing for the Lord. He looked for those opportunities, and he wrote them down in Scripture, no less. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write these things down, and we're reading about it today. So it's no wonder he says what he says here, enough to make a, a less spiritual man blush. And, and he wraps the entire excursus in an inclusio of hope. You'll notice this little section ends the way that it begins. Verse 19 starts with, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And then he concludes in verses 23 and 24 with, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
So Paul frames this section with his desire to see Timothy as, as soon as, and, and to have Timothy go and, and for him to join him later on, as soon as he finds out what the outcome of his trial is going to be. As soon as he knows, am I going to survive this or not? I believe that I am. I, I, I have confidence that the Lord will pull me through and this isn't my time to die. But I can't say that with certainty and, I, and until I know for sure, until this comes down the line and I hear it from the emperor himself, that I'm free to go, that I don't have to be chained to this guard any longer. Whenever that time comes, he says, I want to join. I, I want to I be there, but I will make sure that I send Timothy that moment as soon as the outcome becomes clear. So you could look at this section as a sandwich. His hope to send Timothy, that's the bread. And the humble qualities that make Timothy so, value, like, so valuable to his ministry, that's the filling. While the whole sandwich is good, it's the filling that we want to focus on today. Because the three verses in the middle provide us with three essential qualities for effective ministry. And Paul wants us to be like Timothy, to follow his example as a selfless servant. He wants to take everything that he has commanded us already in stark black and white, and he wants to fill it in with color. He wants us to see the details, and he wants to see what that looks like as it's played out within a person's life. So we can then go and do likewise. So what are these qualities? First of all, the selfless servant is concerned for others. Concerned for others. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And Timothy wasn't in the ministry for the fame or the fortune. Few men are. Some are actually able to make fame and fortune out of it. And we will see how their ministry is tested on Judgment Day. But he wasn't in it for that. He wasn't in it for himself. He genuinely cared about other people. So for Paul, sending Timothy was a no-brainer. I mean, sure, Timothy was valuable to him, and he would need Timothy to be there in case things didn't go the way that he hoped. I mean, what if Nero then turns around and he, he goes in a different direction than what Paul is expecting? What if he says, oh, off with his head, let's end this thing here and now. I, I don't, I don't want to mess with this. What's Paul going to do if Timothy isn't there at that point? I, I mean, he still has all of that sage wisdom and advice that he is then going to pour out later on in 2 Timothy. He has all of that to give. He wants to make sure that that good deposit is passed on and that it's entrusted and that Timothy will then be faithful to pass it on to other faithful men. But who better to send at this juncture than the one person he knew would be genuinely concerned for their well-being? In making this statement, he draws out two observations about Timothy's selflessness. First of all, true selflessness is rare. It's rare. He says, for I have no one like him. And that's not to say that Timothy is the only selfless servant that Paul had. When it came to ministry, Paul was a disciple-producing machine. Uh, he knew how to make disciples, and he would send them out into the church to serve the church all over the place. Everywhere he went, he planted churches. He appointed elders. He trained leaders for the work of the ministry. He had several devoted men who were strategically placed all over the Roman world. Uh, they were faithfully serving in ministry because of Paul 
And yet he says, I have no one like Timothy. What is he saying there? Remember, Paul is not alone as he writes this. He is chained to a guard. He has Timothy in the room with him, but who else does he have in the room with him? Epaphroditus. If that's, what, if that's what Paul is meaning here, how insulting would that be to Epaphroditus, that poor guy? Can you imagine how he would have felt as he heard Paul say those words? I have no one like Timothy. What is, what is Epaphroditus going to think? What am I? Am I chopped liver? I mean, do, do I count? Do I, do I matter? Aren't I a selfless servant? No, that is not what he's saying. He's not saying that everyone else is worthless. He's simply pointing out that good help is really hard to find. It's really hard to find. Selfless servanthood is rare, even in the church. You'll discover that wherever you look, wherever you go, in a church of our size or larger, wherever you look, you're going to find some people who serve and some people who don't. And then many of those who do serve want to serve on their terms or they serve for the wrong reasons. The people who are willing to go wherever, to do whatever, whenever, for whoever, those people are really hard to find. People who are truly selfless are incredibly rare. And those are the people who are invaluable to ministry. Good servants don't grow on trees. So Paul is saying, I am sending you my best. I'm giving you the best that I've got. Interestingly enough, when you look at the various translations of this verse, here's what you get. The NASB says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. The King James says, for I have no man like-minded. And the Holman combines the two by saying, for I have no one else like-minded. Literally in the Greek, you have three words here in a conjunction that doesn't get translated. And he says, no one I have of equal soul. No one I have of equal soul. The word for equal soul here is a compound word. It's isopsychus. Iso is an isolated, as in one, singular, and psychos is in psyche, psycho. Not as in psycho is in out of your mind, but psycho is in of the mind, of the, of the heart, of the spirit. He's saying that he is one in heart, one in mind, one in spirit. Paul says, Timothy and I, we're on the same page We're in sync. We're stepping together. We're not going off in opposite directions. We're not trying to forge our own path in ministry. We are together in this. We are moving in the same direction with the same force and the same actions. Timothy and I are as one. We think alike. We love alike. We hate alike. It is as if he and I were the same person. Again, it's been 10 years This relationship between Paul and Timothy started over a decade ago. And Timothy has had plenty of opportunity to learn from the Apostle Paul. Plenty of opportunity. Later, Paul would write to Timothy in in that last letter of his, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 11. He'll say, you, however, this is speaking to Timothy, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Wow. He says, look, son, you've had a front row seat to my ministry. You've seen it all. 
I've had nothing from you. You know what makes me tick. And I know that you and I, we're together in this. And Timothy didn't just hang out or go get coffee for the apostle. Timothy wasn't just there. He didn't hang around in the background. He, he didn't just watch the apostle do his thing. He followed him. His teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, persecution, sufferings, and whatever else the apostle went through. And Timothy followed him and imitated him and learned to live like Paul. It's no wonder that the two of them were of one mind. One mind. After all, Jesus affirmed in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Timothy was a rare jewel to the Apostle Paul. This is the only time this word, isopsychus, appears in the Bible. And Paul uses it this one time to describe his selfless servant who supported his ministry and became more than a friend. The question for us is how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we become like Timothy and become like-minded with Paul? How do we go beyond attending church services once or twice a week or serving where we want on our terms without being told what to do? How do we go beyond that? The answer is simple. If you want to think and act like Paul, whose main goal in life was to think and act like Jesus, you have to master this book. You have to be in the book. You have to know the Bible. You have to know it well. You have to know what it says and do what it says. You can't develop a biblical mindset outside of the Bible. That doesn't make any sense. You have to be in this book for the purpose of being changed by it. And let me say that this is one of the most depressing aspects of gospel ministry. It's the most depressing aspect for for so many of us. This rarity of this attitude in the church. We need more Timothys. As I was preparing this message this week, I found myself praying that. Lord, bring us Timothys. Make us Timothys. Work in our hearts. Lord, how can I be a Timothy? That's the first observation about Timothy's selfless servanthood. Here in verse 20. We also see that true selflessness is real. It's rare and it's real. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. And he was wholeheartedly devoted to Paul and Paul's ministry. But he was also wholeheartedly devoted to the church. He genuinely cared about the welfare of others. The word that Paul uses here is that word concerned. It's a really interesting word in the Greek. It can be translated either positively or negatively, depending on the context. For instance, this same word will be translated negatively later on in chapter 4, verse 6, when Paul says, do not be anxious for anything. That word anxious, it's the same word here for concerned in our text. In Matthew 6, this word is again translated anxious or worried. How many of you can add a a single day to your life through worrying, through anxiety, through being anxious? Again, that is a negative translation of this same word. 
But like Philippians 2.20, this word can also point to a positive form of anxiety. That is a deep care, an attentive desire, or a profound concern. And that's what Timothy has for the Philippian church. Again, his deepest concern is not for himself, but for them. And that, friends, is a healthy anxiety. It's a healthy concern. It's a biblical form of anxiety that is genuinely directed towards others. You see, true selflessness is not anxious about what other people think about you or what other people are doing or not doing for you. It's not concerned with your own welfare. It's concerned with the welfare of others. D.A. Carson writes, and I I love this. I thought it was so good. Had to throw it into this message. D.A. Carson writes, Emulate those who are interested in the well-being of others, not their own. Be on the alert for Christians who really do exemplify this basic Christian attitude, this habit of helpfulness. They are never the sort who strut their way into leadership with inflated estimates of their own importance. They are the kind who cheerfully pick up after other people. They are not offended if no one asks about them. They are too busy asking about others. Tell me, are you that kind of Christian? The kind who cares deeply for your brothers and sisters in Christ. When someone needs a meal, do you make it? When someone needs a ride, do you give it? When someone needs a friend, are you there for them? Do you pray for those who are in pain? Or do you expect others to just do that for you when your body gives out? Do you lend a hand or offer criticism? Do you give to the needy or complain about being ignored? How about we take it a step further? How about we take it as far as the text goes? Are you genuinely concerned? Are you genuinely anxious? Do you have a deep gut-level desire for other people? Do you feel it? Are you compelled to serve others out of toilsome duty or true desire? Do you have an undeniable biblical anxiety or concern for other believers? You see, verse 20 packs a punch because real, genuine, authentic selflessness is rare and beautiful and hard to find. Timothy was an incredible force for the gospel because he was useful in the hand of God. The selfless servant is concerned for others. That's number one. Number two, the selfless servant is concerned for Christ. Concerned for Christ. Look at verse 21. He says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Who are the they that is mentioned here in verse 21? If Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians, then the people that are mentioned here in this verse, they are obviously not that. There is a contrast that is taking place here between verse 20 and 21. These people may appear on the outside to to be on the outside of themselves, but they are actually self-absorbed. When he says they all seek their own interest, he's talking about those in Rome who are preaching Christ but causing him grief. Go ahead and flip one page back over to chapter 1 
And look at what he says there in verse 15, just to remind ourselves. Remember, here are the people that Paul is dealing with while waiting for his day in court. Verse 15, he says, Indeed, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there were some that were preaching from goodwill, but others were envious and they were, they were full of rivalry. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, and praise God for those few. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul had a good attitude, and that word pretense there it means hypocrisy, whether it's, whether it's with a mask or not, whether it's genuine, whether it's real, like my brother Timothy that I'm sending to you, whether it's real or not, whether it's just a facade, whether it's just an act, whether it's surface level, maybe it's an inch thick. He says, regardless, I'm just so thankful and so glad that the gospel is being preached. The gospel is going out. But you see, there were some in Rome who were preaching the right gospel, but they were doing it with the wrong motives. And when we looked at this passage last year, we saw that our motives matter to God. They matter. These men were pastors and evangelists in Rome who preached the same message, but they despised Paul for his ministry success. And they were only in it for themselves. They were jealous of Paul's gifts, his intellect, his zeal, his clarity, his reputation, his authority, everything that he brought with him to the table. He may be under house arrest, but he's still the apostle Paul. And they didn't like that at all. How dare he come to their town? How dare he be arrested and brought to Rome? I mean, what is that going to do for my spotlight? What is it going to do for me and my ministry? That is the mentality that these people had. And they put Paul down in hope of building themselves up. They talked bad about him behind his back, hoping to make his chains more unbearable as time dragged on. These were petty men who aspired to self-greatness at the expense of others. So it was hard. It was hard for Paul to look around, even within the church and even within the believers that were there collected in Rome, to try and find somebody worthy to send F.F. Bruce writes, There were some indeed in Rome at the time who were preaching the gospel, quote, in love. But of all those who were available to Paul as messengers, none was so free from self-centeredness as Timothy. For Timothy, as for Paul, the cause of Jesus Christ was bound up in the well-being of his people. You see, if you truly love Christ you will truly love his church. And one of the greatest expressions of love for Christ is to love his people. The two go hand in hand. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Church, if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to think and act like Jesus, if you want to become more and more like your Savior, a good place to start is to start caring about what Jesus cares about. Don't seek your own interest. Don't do it. Seek His. 
When Paul says they all seek their own interests, he's saying, I am surrounded by Christians who are all wrapped up in doing their own thing. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm surrounded by believers, Christians, people who know the gospel well enough to share the gospel, but they're so wrapped up in themselves. They're so wrapped up in their things and what they want and their agendas and and all of their own desires. And I can't send any of them. In other words, they're too busy thinking about themselves to think like Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. It's possible to get so caught up in our own little worlds, even in the work of the ministry, and lose sight of what really matters to Christ. Guess what? I realize that this runs countercultural to everything that we've taught and everything that we've learned since we were kids, but the Bible is clear. The Bible is crystal clear. God does not want us to live for ourselves. That is not God's desire for you. He doesn't save you for you to then turn around and live for yourself. I know it's radical, but it's true. We're told time and time again throughout Scripture to deny ourselves for the sake of everyone else. 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. A few verses later, Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. There's a, there's a verse that's just ripe to be abused by the seeker-sensitive community. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Why? Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Even the definition of love, found later in, in 1 Corinthians 13, says love does not insist on its own way. Love is all about giving, not getting. It's self-denying, not self-gratifying. The selfless servant is one who is concerned for others, but is also concerned for Christ because he is compelled by the love of Christ to serve Christ and to serve others because he loves his Savior. That's number two. And finally, the selfless servant is concerned for the gospel. Concerned for the gospel. Look at verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. The natural outcome for someone who concerns themselves with Christ and the church is a heart for evangelism. You can't share what you don't have. And if you don't have the gospel, what you do have isn't worth sharing. As you know, the mission of this church is twofold, to know Jesus and to make him known. We study the gospel to live the gospel to then share the gospel because that's why we're here. That's what we have been called to do. We have not been called to sit on our laurels to enjoy all the benefits of freedom and life in Christ to then hoard it all for ourselves. We are commanded to go forth to make disciples, to teach and to show, to spread light in this dark world. That is our command to share this good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, that a perfect Savior has come and has sacrificed himself on behalf of your sins, on behalf of the sins of of anyone who would place their faith in that sacrifice for their redemption, that God poured out his wrath against sinners, 
that he poured it all upon his son, and his son drank that cup down to the dregs on the cross. That he suffered, he bled, he died, and he took the punishment for our sin. The entire weight and force of our eternal transgression against God that is worthy of an eternal hell, that being placed upon him in order to pay the price so that the Father could then look at us and see his righteousness, his perfect life, for looking at him and seeing our sin during those six hours on the cross. That's good news, friends. Good news. Good news that if you are born again, you will only die once. But if you are not born again, if you are only born once, you have a second death waiting for you. And you need to repent. You need to repent of your sin. You need to believe in this Savior, this Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. We are called to share that good news with others. And that is the natural byproduct. That is, that is what naturally flows out of us, oozes out of us as we live for Christ, as we are concerned for his, his church, for his people, and we are concerned for him, for his love and his desires that he has for us. Now again, just like verse 20, Paul gives us two more observations about Timothy's selflessness here in the text. First, we see that true selflessness is steady. It's steady. It's rock steady. He says, you know Timothy's proven worth. The word for proven worth here means tested true. It means to pass with flying colors. And Timothy did more than just read books about the ministry, as good as that is, as helpful as that might be. He lived it. He experienced it firsthand. I remember hearing in school about this young man in his late teens, early 20s, who had never been married, never had kids. But that didn't stop him from writing a book on parenting. Now you have to wonder, who's going to buy that book? I mean, maybe his friends would, those that have kids, just so they could highlight a few things, maybe write a few notes in the margin, and then come back and slap them on the side of the head and say, wait till you have kids, then you will know what you're talking about. I mean, who's going to read it? In a sea of parenting books, why would anyone invest their time in reading that one? Because if you're a parent, you know that there are a lot of things you don't know until you're there, or more likely, once you're on the other side of it, and then you bang your head up against the wall and you try to warn others as quickly as you can, don't do what I did, because here are the lessons that I learned along the way. Timothy had seen it all. He had experienced it all with Paul. And Paul knew that he could count on Timothy to remain faithful and to stay the course no matter what. Whereas others, like John Mark, abandoned him. And and as time continues to to become more and more tempestuous and tumultuous for him, as, as the tests come through, as times get tough, there are those who will fail the test. But Timothy proved himself faithful. He was tough. He was true. He was trustworthy. He had the scars to prove it. Those who are truly selfless are truly steady. They don't waver. They don't retreat or run at the first sign of danger. Again, Timothy is young. Timothy is in his early to mid-30s. He's not an older man. But at the same time, he's not fresh out of college. He's not new to the game. He's got a few miles on his odometer. After 10 years of sticking it out with Paul, he's proven himself. It's no wonder that Paul can say with certainty that he can depend on Timothy. And you can depend on Timothy too. I'm sending you someone that you know is reliable. 
I hope and pray that the same can be said for us. Are you one of those? Are you one of those faithful few that others rely upon when they need help? Do people turn to you because you're dependable, you're steadfast, your, your worth is proven? Or are you just another member, a consumer and not a contributor? Listen, churches are full of too many people who start strong, but they fail the test when they come. They fall over with every puff of wind, and then they blame everyone else for their failure. You want to know who the faithful few really are? You want to know who those, those Timothys of the church really are, those faithful few that stick it out, that stand the test, that make it? It's simple. They're the ones who, after the battle is over, are still standing, who are still with you. They don't disappear when you need help. They don't get out of Dodge as soon as the bad guys roll into town. They don't hop from church to church. They don't turn their backs on the work that needs to be done in serving Christ and the church and the lost. The selfless servant is one who puts his hand to the plow and forges ahead when times are tough. He says, this is my church. This is my ministry, my mission field. This is my sacrifice for my Savior. And in doing so, he passes the test and he proves his worth as a faithful servant. And then finally, we see true selflessness is submissive. Submissive. It's steady and it's submissive. Paul goes on to say, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. That word served is the verb form of the word slave. Slave. Literally, he says, he has slaved with me. Notice Paul says, with me, not under me. They were in this together, slaving away for the gospel. And yet their relationship was that of a father and a son. In other words, Timothy chose to humble himself and serve alongside Paul. Not so much today, but in the ancient world, it was common for sons to work alongside their fathers in order to learn the family business. That meant that they had to give up. They had to give up whatever dreams or aspirations they may have had. They had to, they had to continue on in, the father, in their father's footsteps. And in order to do that, they had to set their own personal desires or dreams or whatever else they may have had in the wings aside. That's the picture that Paul paints for us here. Timothy had a lot going for him. He was young, he was gifted, he was more than capable of forging his own path. But where Paul went, he went. And when Paul told him to go, he left. He made it his ambition to serve Christ by serving Paul. And as wonderful as Paul was, perhaps the greatest Christian to ever live, he still had his flaws. In fact, turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. We tend to think very highly of Paul and his work now that the canon of Scripture has been closed. And the Spirit used Paul to write so much of it. But look at how Paul describes his own ministry here to the Corinthians in chapter 4, starting in verse 9. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, 
but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's the life that Timothy chose for himself. That's who he hooked up with. He decided to to hitch his wagon to the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Sinclair Ferguson writes, this kind of relationship is a common pattern in Scripture. Moses had Joshua, Elijah had Elisha, Peter has Mark. Leaders must prove themselves by serving with others first. It is thus that they learn not only how to lead, but what it's like to be led. Unfortunately, some of us want to be leaders, but have never allowed ourselves to be led. Whatever leadership gifts we may have, we lack the one thing needful, a servant spirit. End quote. Friend, when it comes to ministry, there are no shortcuts. Ask yourself, how low are you willing to go to be like Christ, Paul, or Timothy? Will you still serve if no one else knows that you did it? If someone else gets the credit? If it means giving up your ambition for theirs? Is it worth it to you if you don't get that pat on the back that you believe you deserve? You see, selfless servants like Timothy are rare. They aren't a dime a dozen. They are few and far between. They're real. They genuinely care deeply for the welfare of others. They're steady because they keep passing the test. As life keeps throwing more and more at them, they keep standing up for faithfulness, for truth, for what is right. And they are submissive, ready to sacrifice their personal glory for the sake of the gospel. This is what colorized Christianity looks like. A humble attitude will change the way that you live your life. It will affect you. You will not be like everybody else. Because unlike everyone else, the selfless servant is concerned for others, concerned for Christ, and concerned for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as humbled men and women, as those who know the truth. I pray that we would be those who live the truth, who share the truth, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and that we would be like him in every way, and that that would provide a platform for us to then open our mouths and share this gospel truth with others, this good news, so that they too may be saved. And that they too may then, as spiritual babies, grow into mature manhood. That they would serve others. That they would become effective, useful servants. Tools in the hand of an awesome and mighty God. Lord, we pray these things. We long for these things. We desire these things here within our congregation. Lord, I thank you for so many faithful men and women for bringing us together, for building us up and establishing us in the faith as you already have. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do so. 
that you would further enforce this church, that you would, that you would fortify it, that you would protect it, that you would keep us weathered and ready in the days ahead to stand for truth, to do whatever is necessary in order to know Jesus and make him known here in this community and around the world. God, we love you. We thank you again for your grace, for your love, for your kindness, your tenderness towards us. We pray all of these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.